You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Let's pray. Father, we do confess you as Lord, and we pray that the confession of our lips would flow from true belief in our hearts. So would you speak to us, not through and by human wisdom, but by your Spirit through your revealed Word, that you would block our ears of anything that comes merely from human wisdom And in your grace and by your spirit, you would teach and equip and encourage your people from your word, your words of eternal life. Encourage our hearts as we now worship through this time in your scriptures, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. Uh, Grab your Bibles. Turn to Luke chapter 20. Uh, If you need a Bible, some folks are coming around and can get you one so you can follow Along, We're kind of in the middle here in our section of this longer, um, I don't know, piece uh, of this interaction between Jesus and a handful of others, uh, power brokers in the culture. And Jesus has become a threat to them. He's become a threat to their hold over the people in all sorts of various ways. And so that's kind of where we pick up our passage today. There are some who are questioning Jesus They're working to trick him with their questions, um, disingenuous questions to try to either discredit him in the eyes of others or even get him in trouble with uh, the powers of Rome at the time. Either way, their end goal is if Jesus loses, they win. So uh, that's kind of the context where we find ourselves. We're going to read the text and then go from there. We're going to start Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 27, and we're going to read through verse 40. Luke 20, starting in verse 27. Uh, You can follow along in your Bibles and on the screen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. There came to him, to Jesus, some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children... The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second, and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living. 
for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer to dared, they no longer dared to ask him any question. This is God's word for us this morning. May it accomplish God's purposes in us for his glory. Amen. Now, Luke tells us that some Sadducees now had come to Jesus in order to ask him another question, a disingenuous kind of trick question. This time, they're using the illustration or the idea of marriage and how it relates to the life to come, eternal life, uh, heaven, what, what comes after this life. And so how is marriage in this life, they're asking, related to whatever comes next? Now, if you remember, if you were with us these last couple of weeks, the Sadducees had kind of joined forces with some others, other groups to take down Jesus. But as a group, the Sadducees denied that there will actually be a resurrection from the dead. Luke just tells us they didn't even believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe really in any kind of afterlife, that this life was it. And the Sadducees argued their point. Their particular kind of sect or group would regularly engage with what they felt was a biblical or an Old Testament argument for their belief. They argued, essentially, that Moses, in the books that are attributed to Moses, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that Moses didn't really point to some kind of future resurrection, but all the instruction that Moses gave God's people from the Lord was really intended for this life. And the idea... The Sadducees argue that any idea about a future resurrection or or, or afterlife of any kind was one of two things. Either it was just made up along the way as a way for a, a broken and people who had been subjected to all kinds of exile and tragedy, something they made up along the way to make themselves feel better, so that, or they adopted it from some other religious system and kind of incorporated it into their beliefs. And so that was their, essentially their position, give or take. So at the time of Jesus, the, the party of the Sadducees would regularly be found debating other teachers in Israel, in the temple and other places, arguing against the idea of any kind of life to come and any kind of idea that what we do in this life might result in either blessings or consequences after death. This was their well-known and well-stated position that this life was all that there is. Now, we don't hear a lot about the Sadducees in Luke, so the fact that they're brought up here and their argument is here is important. And so that's the question I want to press on today. Is this life all that there is? That's their stated position. Is this it? Is the time that we get here, 30 years, 40 years, 80 years, is is this it? And then afterwards, nothing? Or... Is there significance here in this life that also says something about what comes next? So that's the question. That's the problem we're looking at. Is this life all that there is? And my answer to the question, and our big idea from the text, I think, from Jesus, is that because God is the God of the living, that there is glory in this life and greater glory in the life to come. Because God is the God of the living, that there is great glory in this life and even greater glory in the life to come. And so Jesus, I think, responding to this trick question, 
makes two theological statements, two truths he lays down in this passage. One, that this life is a beautiful shadow of the life to come. And two, that God is a God of the living and not the dead. So we're going to look at the text kind of through those two truths that Jesus lays down in his answer. Let's look at the first one. That this life is a shadow of the life to come. Now, these Sadducees decide to question Jesus' belief in the resurrection. And the example they use, or the the illustration they use, is one about marriage. And specifically, they say, in reference, something Moses taught us. Well, where does this come from? In Deuteronomy chapter 25, Moses gives instruction for the people of Israel that if a man is married to his wife and he dies before producing any children, then it would be the responsibility of that man's brother to take now this widowed sister-in-law, to take his brother's wife, who is now a widow, into his own family as his own wife to care for her, and provide for her. Everything that would be required of a husband uh, to provide for his brother's, who's passed away, wife, including providing her with children. Moses, uh, this is referenced in Deuteronomy chapter 25. The idea of leverate marriage is the phrase that's used. And the purpose of this instruction was twofold in Deuteronomy. Twofold. One, It was to provide for the widow. She just lost her husband. She had no children, no legacy in that regard in terms of uh, cultural and family heritage that was hers anymore. And so this would have been ultimately devastating, which loss always is, but all the more to be felt and left with essentially nothing. So one, it was given to provide for that widow. And two... The other thing it was intended to do is to ensure the continuation of the family line and the family name. So Moses gave these instructions to a people in the context of a broken world to both provide care and to provide a future. Now, what's interesting about this whole idea is there's not a whole bunch of examples. Like this wasn't a very common thing that happened every day whether in the Old Testament and certainly not up into the New Testament. There are some biblical examples of this practice being carried out, but it's not terribly widespread. And by the time of Jesus, it was likely more of a rhetorical, kind of theoretical theological question than it was like happening every day around every corner. Like everyone knew someone who, like that just probably wasn't the case. We don't have examples of that all throughout the New Testament. That being said... The Sadducees decide, we're going to use this kind of obscure mosaic instruction and a pretty rare reality in the law of Moses to see if we can't catch Jesus on on something, see what he really believes about the resurrection, something that might get him in trouble. And to make their question even more ridiculous than it already kind of sounds, it's not just one brother who dies or a second brother who dies the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and the sixth brother, and the seventh brother also dies, right? Knock this over. You see the the kind of the, the extreme illustration they're using here? I mean, mercifully, verse 32, the woman dies herself. Like, what a tragic life this woman has lived, right? So they use this really extreme example that's like just outside the bounds of reality, And then they ask the question, after all of this, like, 
reality for this supposed person, which kind of tells us it's not a real example, but they're just drawing it out to kind of its absurd end. After all of this, they ask the question, so who's married to her in the life to come? I mean, she was married to all seven brothers at some point. So Jesus, how is this all going to work? Essentially, what they're doing is they're saying this. Moses gave us some very clear instruction as to what this is supposed to look like. How do we deal with this kind of difficulty in life? In this case, caring for this widow, giving her, uh, her husband's brother then to take, take her as, as his own wife. This is instruction given to us. But if there was a resurrection to come after, then what Moses has told us doesn't make any sense. Therefore, there must not be any resurrection to come because that, this would all get muddy. That was essentially their theological argument. They concluded Moses couldn't have believed or been pointing to some kind of future resurrection because this then doesn't make sense. Therefore, we don't actually believe in a future resurrection. So we're going to use this absurd, extreme example to prove our point. But what they failed to understand was that this life and the next life are not the same. And that's, I think, what Jesus is pointing on. Look what he says at, uh, in verse 34. Jesus says this, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Jesus is drawing a, a clear contrasting line between this life and the life to come. There's some clear differences Essentially, Jesus is saying the, the here and now has some things, and this is how it works. A young man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. That happens here, Jesus says, in this age. It's good, and it has a purpose. But those who are considered worthy, Jesus continues, that is, those whom the Father makes worthy, who, those who enter into the rest of eter the eternal kingdom. By the way, there's some undercover gospel language in this passage that it's really good. When by God's grace and mercy we get to that life to come, there's going to be no more weddings between men and women in the way that there are here. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. In a sense, to push on this reality that if, if your view of this life and the uh, next life they're connected, but they're not the same. And so if, you, if you're off on one, if you, if you have a skewed view of this life, it might affect the way you view the next. And if you have a skewed view of what the life to come, well, that's going to affect how you view life here. They're connected, but they're not the same. In fact, even uh, the, the Jews of the day who did believe there was some kind of resurrection from the dead, some kind of afterlife to come, the prevailing thinking of the day was essentially this, that the life to come would be more or less life just like here, only better. And I think we tend to view heaven or we tend to view the life to come kind of similarly. Essentially this, that the, the life to come would be life like this, just free of difficulty. It would be like this, only just free of enemies. It would be like this, only the blessings would be more abundant. It was essentially a better, and let me say it this way, merely a better and modified version of this life. But I think Jesus actually corrects that idea. Jesus says, well, the example you gave, 
that marriage there is not like marriage here because life there is different than life here. In fact, the life to come is not merely an improvement on this life. Jesus is saying, I think you're thinking about this all wrong. This life is a shadow of that life. That's why I use that word shadow. And so then Jesus uses their marriage illustration and kind of turns it around to say, I don't think this idea of marriage proves what you think it proves. You think it proves because it would have been complicated in, in the kingdom for these, this marriage situation to work out with this woman and all these dead husbands that it must disregard and, and do away with a future resurrection. And Jesus says, no, 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 you totally misunderstand the resurrection. So let me correct that for you. Look at what Jesus says. In the age to come, there will be no more marriage. Why? Verse 36. For they cannot die anymore. Jesus says, marriage in the life to come is different than marriage here because funerals in the life to come don't exist. He connects those two things. He says, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of of the resurrection. Now, real quick, being equal to the angels does not mean that we all get wings and harps, okay? So I want to be clear on that. What Jesus, I think, is saying here is that you and I will not be hindered by our limited physical bodies that have been affected by the curse of sin, but that we will be in glorified, resurrected bodies. So all of our previous hindrances will be gone, that there will be a fullness and a completeness to us as we are resurrected with and in Christ when he says, sons of the resurrection. And by the way, that is good news. Amen? (laughs) Right? And he says the reason or one of the reasons why marriage in the kingdom won't be like marriage here is because we can't die. If you go back to Deuteronomy 25, why did God through Moses, give instructions for brothers to take on the care of their brother's widow. Why did he do that? At least one of the reasons was to preserve his people. He was ensuring their continued existence. If they didn't have children and multiply themselves, they would cease to exist. And so, Deuteronomy 25 actually goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. What did God say in Genesis chapter 1? He said, let us make man in our image. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And in verse 28 of Genesis chapter 1, we read that God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. There is a mandate in creation given to Adam and Eve, and this same directive is given to every man and woman who enters into the covenant of marriage before God to be fruitful and to multiply, to continue what God gave Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1. Now, I am fully aware that the life that we live here that has been marred by sin, the sin of our first parents, actually fractures this reality as well. That this is a pain point for many people. Infertility and loss is a legitimate 
and painful reality on this side of glory. I know that. I know that. There are many wives and husbands here at our, in our church family who long for children and have to bear the grief of miscarriage and for many not being able to carry and birth children of their own. Hear me please very clearly. We believe that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And part of the reason it is indeed a grief that we bear is because we know, we know what it should be. It in fact proves the point. So as we grieve that kind of loss, which we should grieve, our grief is acknowledging that this is not the way that God said it to be in Genesis chapter 1 before sin came and fractured it. And as a side, because we trust in the gracious sovereignty of our good Father, we can trust that in our weeping and in our faith-filled pleading that God will give and take away as He sees fit and we can bless His name as the Spirit sustains us. And there's a lot more we could press on as we lean into that. But let me just say this, that I'm so grateful for the courage and the willingness of Jackie, as you heard the announcement earlier, to lead in walking through grief and hope, gospel hope and healing, specifically for those who are wrestling with this particular grief. And if that's you, and we would love to walk with you in the grief and hope that is found in Jesus in bearing that. Further, God is remarkably gracious to meet His people in their grief. As the Holy Spirit actually enables us to celebrate and preserve life. And so we see, even in the midst of brokenness, God do amazing things to multiply and expand family. There's families in this church who are engaging in foster care and adoption, which also come from God. That our care for and adoption of children flows directly from the reality that God, our Father, has adopted us. If you missed the gospel in that, let's talk. Right? It's a wonderful expression of gospel love that pushes against the darkness of sin that lingers in the world. It's, it's beautiful. And so, but I think Genesis 1 makes it clear that from the beginning, a primary purpose of uniting Adam and Eve, of the man and the woman, is for the fruitfulness and multiplication of humanity. So I don't want to miss that here. That's important here, especially in a culture that devalues human life so often, that places comfort and selfish pursuits ahead of the purposes that God has for his own people. So Jesus is saying, in this life, one of the principal outcomes of marriage is to reproduce because the earth is to be populated. And because in Adam, you all will die. Sorry if that's news to you. We all die. The curse of sin means that we have to taste death. But, Jesus says, in the resurrection, in the life to come, death is no more. And if death is no more, then the purpose of this is different. The need to populate the new earth becomes obsolete. Why? Because death is obsolete. And so Jesus is saying that the life to come is, isn't like the life here, only just a little bit better. The life to come is something, entire, uh, something else entirely. And so I think that's the first truth that Jesus is laying down to kind of help give some perspective on what life here and the life to come look like. 
that, that the life here isn't exactly like the life to come. Rather, this life is a shadow of that life. Now, some of you might be asking, especially you folks who are married in the room, well, what does that actually mean? What does this passage then actually say? I'm, am I not going to be married? How will I relate to my spouse in heaven? What if, like the example, you are a widow or a widower and you have married again? How is this all going to work? I pointed, my wife was sitting here in the front row at first service. We've been married, uh, well, it'll be 21 years now. I know that's, that's my entire life because I'm only 22. And um, <laughs> it's not true. I'm older than that. Um, but it's like, well, we spent a whole lifetime together. See you later. You know, like that's not how this is going to go. But what will it actually be? Now, quick caveat. We need to be very careful to not make deep theological positions on single verses of the Bible. So some of my answer to you might be like, you didn't say enough. I didn't say enough on purpose. But there's a few things I think are clear from this passage that we can take. And if you want to discuss more, again, email me and buy me coffee. A couple things. I think we can kind of say three things, at least from this passage. The first one is this. No, you will not be a polygamist in heaven. What I mean by that is you're not going to have, especially those of you uh, who have been married more than once, who have lost a spouse and have remarried, you're not going to have like a wife on each arm and like, gee, this is awkward. I wonder what we're going to do. I just don't think that's how it's going to function in heaven. Two, because, well, Jesus says as much. Two, I don't think you're going to be married in the same way that you're married here. On the flip side, those of you who are single here, you're also not going to be single like you are here. The way in which we interact with one another and with God in the kingdom to come is just going to be different. Which leads to the third thing I think we can take away from this passage on this topic specifically is that there is a fullness and a perfection in glory in which we will all live, all of us. So love and companionship and joy and fellowship and worship and peace, we will all share in this because we will all be complete in Christ Jesus. And he will be the glorious soul focus for our eternity. And if because he's the center focus for all of eternity, Every other redeemed and restored and gloriously touched by the divine relationship and interaction and life is just gravy on top of Christ. I think that's maybe more of a takeaway from this than trying to figure out, are, are we going like to live in different houses or how's this going to... I think that's less important. Not that your question's dumb if you're asking that question, but just to reorient our, our focus a bit. This is why I use the word shadow when I talk about life here. It's not that life here doesn't matter or life here is insignificant. In fact, exactly the opposite. Life here is very significant. But the life here doesn't just end on itself. All of life here is pointing to something else. It's a shadow of something else. So marriage here, yes, is for companionship, right? God made Adam... And Adam was alone. And God said, this is not good. That guy needs help. And so he created Eve. And that was very good. 
right? So, so marriage here is for companionship. It's so that a man and a woman are not alone. They provide mutual encouragement and fulfillment. It's for joy that, that they, together that you might celebrate the very best of God's creation and the best of all of God's good gifts in and with your spouse. Marriage is given for multiplication that as God ordains that you might bear and raise up children to fill the earth and subdue it. It is all those things. And, and as Paul says, marriage is pointing at something. Marriage is pointing at Christ and his love, his unending and perfect love for his bride, the church. See, if you stop on here, just what happens here, I think you actually miss the heart of marriage because it's not ultimately about multiplication. It's not ultimately about companionship. It's not ultimately about joy and fulfillment and not being alone. It's ultimately about Jesus. At its heart, marriage is a picture, an illustration of Christ's perfect love for his church. That's what it's meant to do. So what Jesus is saying is that there's not a need for marriage in this way in the kingdom because the last and final wedding will take place and Jesus, the bridegroom, will be united to his bride forever. Don't get me wrong. I love weddings. I love doing pre-marriage counseling. I have a couple of couples who who Amy and I are meeting with right now. They're getting married here in the next number of months. And I love doing premarriage counseling because we have these young couples who are so in love and they know absolutely nothing and they don't even care. They're just happy. I actually talked to one after the service trying to figure out a time when we can meet in the next week or so. And he was like, I am that guy. I know nothing. I'm like, yes, you are. Right? Like, I'm excited for these conversations and these things that are, that are coming. And, I, man, I love a good wedding reception. My kids love a good wedding dance. Like, we go to those things as a family. We have to, like, peel them off the floor at, like, 9.30. Like, you have to go to bed now because we're going to regret this tomorrow. Right? But there's no amount of grilled chicken breast and steamed broccoli. There's no amount of line dancing that can even come close, can't even uh, scratch the surface of what the wedding feast of the lamb in the celebration to come is going to look like. Like, not even close. So, so marriage in this life is a beautiful, wonderful, glorious shadow. And it's a lifelong declaration of the gospel, the hope of a better and more perfect marriage between Jesus and his people. So we don't have to over-minimize, I don't even know if that's a phrase, the things of this life to acknowledge that God's best gifts here are actually shadows of something else. I think that's the first thing from this. The second thing that Jesus lays down in this passage is that God is the God of the living and not the dead. Look at verse 37. Jesus goes right after the Sadducees' idea that the resurrection is some some kind of new invented thing. But, Jesus says, verse 37 of Luke 20, that the dead are raised, even Moses in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Jesus is like, you're going to quote Moses from Deuteronomy 25? I'm going to quote Moses from Exodus chapter 3. 
In Exodus chapter 3, if you remember, Moses has left, he's fled Egypt, he's content to live out his life as a nobody shepherd in the wilderness. And God gets Moses' attention by speaking to him from a bush that is on fire but is not burned up. And from the bush, Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, this is what God says to Moses. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Exodus tells us that Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Now, maybe you look at a passage like this and you're going, okay, what is Jesus actually saying? I don't understand his answer. What does Moses and the burning bush have to do with the resurrection? And then Jesus gives his answer by giving the Sadducees two lessons, one in theology and one in grammar. The theology lesson is God is the God of the living. And the grammar lesson is, notice how God said, I am the God of your father. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. Not I was the God of your father, who is now dead. I am is present tense. God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. He says, I am their God. Present tense. Which means, from God's perspective, they exist. Now, Jesus doesn't pull from some obscure text. He doesn't go, go to some other like side passage to try to make his case. He goes right to where God says his name to Moses and tells him, this is who I am, Moses. Theologian and teacher Leon, Mo- Leon Morris, who wrote a commentary on Luke, which is very helpful, He says this, our certainty of resurrection rests not in some speculative doctrine of the immortality of the soul. Our certainty of the resurrection rests on the fact of God's eternal love. Jesus goes back to God telling Moses, I am your God. You are my people. I love you. So Jesus is saying that the idea of life beyond this life is not a new invention. It's not some New Testament, newfangled, made-up idea. Moses knew this in Exodus chapter 3. God is not the God of people who were once alive but have now ceased to exist. He's a God of the living, which is what Jesus says in verse 38. Because then he says, for all live to him. See, death, from our perspective, separates us from our loved ones, but not for God. That's not how it works. It's how it worked for us. It's not how it works for him. In John's gospel, chapter 11, Jesus gets word that his friend Lazarus is sick. And Jesus stays where he's at for a few more days and then travels to the home of his friend. And by the time he arrives, Lazarus has died. And Lazarus' sister Martha comes running out to Jesus. Here's what, he, here's what she says in verse 21 of John chapter 11. Lord, if you had been here my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He asked her, do you believe this? She says to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. I don't know if you picked up on this, but did you see, hear what Martha said? I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. If there's not hope in her grief here, it's amazing. What's more is what Jesus said to her after that. I am the resurrection and the life. Present tense, excuse me, present tense, reality. Yes, there will be a resurrection to come. I almost slightly feel bad for Lazarus because he had to die twice. Almost. But the whole point of this passage is that the resurrection hinges on Jesus. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Your hope of that day to come is standing in front of you. Yes, there will be a resurrection to come. And make no mistake, it's me. It all hinges on me, Jesus says. In just a few short chapters in Luke, Jesus is betrayed, he is mocked, he is beaten, he is killed. He is placed in a tomb, and then after three days, he rises again and is alive. The angels at the tombstone where Jesus was buried ask Mary when she comes to look for the body, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here, the angel says. He is risen. And here's what's, what's funny. And maybe you picked up on this last week. I think we see here in this interaction between these uh, folks who are challenging Jesus what true irony really is. I, uh, what is. Rain on your wedding day is not ironic. And if you know the cross-reference, you're as old as I am. Right? That's not irony. You want to know what irony is? Standing in front of Jesus... The one who literally says, I am the resurrection and the life, and arguing with the resurrection about the life to come. That's ironic. Standing in front of the one who spoke Adam and Eve into existence, the one who established the covenant relationship of marriage, and debating with the one who is himself the bridegroom, and debating with him over the true nature of marriage. That's irony. Or like last week, standing in front of Jesus, the one who is the very image of God, the exact imprint of his nature, who has stamped the Imago Dei, his image, his likeness on every human, and arguing with him about what actually belongs to him versus autonomy. See, God is the God of the living, and from his perspective, all are alive to him, verse 38. All live to him. What this means is this, that there is a spiritual reality for every single human being. 
So Jesus lays down these truths about the resurrection, that, that life is a beautiful shadow of the life, this life is a shadow of the life to come, and two, that God is a God of the living and not the dead. And then Luke closes this section by saying this. Some of the scribes, realizing that they had just been thoroughly dismantled by Jesus in public, some of the scribes speak up and say, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dare to ask him any question. I love the scribes in this passage because they're kind of quiet. They're, they're, are they are with the chief priests when they, the first question about Jesus' authority is asked. And here they are standing on the sidelines listening to the Sadducees get dismantled. And they're kind of like, uh, guys, it's over. Like, thanks, teacher. We're good. I'm out. That's kind of the interaction, kind of the picture you get here. So they kind of like sh- uh, hang their heads in shame and kind of like, Shuffle away is what it looks like. Now, this interaction continues. Jesus keeps teaching. We'll cover that in the coming weeks. But what I would like to do before we close is take then these truths of the resurrection about the life to come is a shadow, or the life to come, uh, the life here is a shadow of the life to come, and that God is the God of the living. These are resurrection truths, have some really tangible applications for us, and I have three of them. The first one is this, that we cannot escape eternity, that there is an eternal reality that every one of us has to consider. We don't just get to say, I don't believe anything happens next, I'll just take annihilation and be done. That's not our say. Because I think without any kind of eternal perspective, we're going to end up spending every ounce of our time, every ounce of our energy and our money and our resources trying to find and create for ourselves fulfillment here, seeking anything that will give more meaning to this life. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and at the time of the writing of Corinthians, they were also dealing with this kind of like neo-Sadducee kind of we don't really believe in a future resurrection idea either. Here's what Paul writes, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, If the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ, they have perished like they're done. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If we only have hope in this life, of all the human beings on the face of the planet, we are the most pitiful. That's what Paul says. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, he says. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus is saying in this interaction with the Sadducees that you guys are going to have to deal with reality. And in this case, a spiritual reality. And so in Luke 20, Jesus draws this clear line that no matter the complexity or the wonder of this life, this, this life is not all that there is. It's not. Now, there, it's significant, but it is incomplete if it is unhitched from the life to come. I would argue 
that I believe we are actually unable to fully understand and to make the most out of this life that we have if we don't have an understanding and a belief and a hope of the life to come. I I think we can't even do it properly. Which leads to the second thing the reality of the resurrection life does for us. I think it actually helps us maximize this life that we live. I think that a healthy view and hope of eternity actually enables us to rightly see and appreciate and live here. Now, I I do think it's possible that we can go off the rails on one side and kind of live this kind of Gnostic, uh, this life is is insignificant and unimportant, and I'm just going to put on blinders, I'm going to bunker down in my, you know, post-apocalyptic a spiritual bunker, and just hope for the end. I think that's possible. I don't know if that's, the, that's where most of us end up. I think actually our problem is the opposite, honestly. We have the opposite problem of not focusing too much on the life to come, but being too settled and focused on the life here. As an illustration... One of the things I love about my kids getting older is that I'm not the only one who has to mow the lawn anymore. My 14-year-old son has been mowing the lawn now for the last two years, and he's gotten better, praise the Lord. I have to just not care if there's, you know, missed spots or, hey, there's a, never mind, it's fine, it's close enough. But a couple things that I've told him when I'm trying to, like, help him, you know, start a, a lawn mowing career that's successful I've given him two kind of key pieces of advice. The first one is don't cut off a hand or a foot, right? Like if you got to, if it's not working, just leave it. Don't flip it over and try to like figure it out. I'll come home and then we'll, you know, try not to die together. So don't lose a a finger or a toe. Be careful. It is a blade spinning on the bottom of a giant metal, you know, disc. Like just be careful. But the second thing I've told him is this. If you want to cut a straight line on the lawn... Don't look at the mower. If you look down at the mower as you're going, trust me, the illustration makes sense. If you look down at the mower as you're going, and if your yard, if your life is anything like my yard, which has bumps and curves and hasn't probably been tended to properly over the last number of years, and it just has waves and unevenness, if you're looking down at the mower, just trying to keep it in line, you're going to get to the other end of your lawn and realize, I, this is not a straight line at all. I was pushed around by every bump, divot, and hole from some rodent, and anthill, and everything, and now I've ended up, and I look behind me, and the line is not straight at all. But Ben, if you want to mow a straight line from the front, uh, to one part of the yard to the other, go pick a spot on the other end of the yard, and just look at that spot, and push the mower as you go, and more often than not, by the time you get to the other side of the lawn and turn around, the line behind you is probably fairly straight. Now, I know the illustration falls apart, because a straight line is impossible. Curvature of the earth, and gravity, and whatever. But you get what I'm saying, right? Any math people in the room are like, it probably isn't a straight line. But, but do, you, do you see the illustration? If you look down, trying to, trying to cut it straight, good luck. But if you look where you're going and you just walk that line to where you're headed, more often than not, the lawn line is going to be pretty nice. Same goes for our lives. If we're solely focused here, we're essentially looking down at our feet as we plod through life. 
I think more often than not, we're going to find ourselves somewhere down the line tripping over a, a, a grief or, or, or a divot in the ground or some kind of hardship or challenge or someone comes along and knocks us off course and we're only looking down at our feet. I think if we don't look forward, it almost guarantees that we're going to get pulled in one direction or another in some bump or twist along the way and end up someplace and we wonder, how did I get here? However, if our goal really is to get the most out of this life, if we truly want to enjoy all that this life has to offer, all the good gifts that God has to offer in this life, in order to do that, I think we need to anchor our view to the future hope of glory in the life to come. And I think what happens then is all of this life we get with it. It's gravy. Only then, with our eyes fixed on the hope to come, I think then we can make the most out of all that God gives us here. A.W. Tozer once wrote this. He said, Any temporal possession can be turned into everlasting wealth. Whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. This life given to Christ, anchored to Christ, immediately eternal and wealth, and wealth, riches, blessing. The good, the challenging, the terrible, all of it. Martha was right. Martha was right, which reminds us of our third takeaway from this passage, that there is a glory in the life to come. And I don't want to miss that. Martha grieved when her brother died, and she even expressed that grief to Jesus, right? If you had been here. But she was right to say that I know that on that last day, my brother will rise again. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, dying isn't loss. Dying is actually gain. So it's not even that dying is not a loss anymore. Dying is not neutral. Paul says dying is gain. Dying is a benefit. <laughs> because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, then death for all of those who are in Christ is only gain. It is never loss again. That's why Paul can say in Romans chapter 8 that all the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed in us. What glory? The glory of life in the resurrection. The glory of Christ revealed in us. Which brings us all the way back to the question I asked at the beginning. Is this life all that there is? And I think the answer has to be no. It, it, it cannot be. In fact, Christ resurrected and our resurrection to follow is a central anchor for what we believe about the gospel. We are not only buried with Christ in his death, it's not just payment for sins on the cross, although it is that, but much more. We are raised to new life with him that we have life in full here and to come. So brothers and sisters, let's not fall into the trap of thinking 
that this life, all of its joys and all of its sorrows, is all that there is. God is a God of the living. Each of us must contend with the living God. And through Christ, we can experience all the joy and all the glory to be had in this life. We get to taste and celebrate all of it with our eyes fixed on the indescribable and the incomprehensible glory to come. Let's pray. Father, we recognize in a passage like this the, the, the weight of it, the, the beauty of it. We recognize the, just the limitation of our view. We, we can't help but only see through the lens of our own experience, see as far as the end of our own nose. And yet you're gracious to open to us the reality of eternity. So, Father, for any of us in the room who have been uh, avoiding the issue of eternity, the reality of standing before you, I pray you draw us out of that place of complacency or fear or ignorance that in your mercy you would force us to contend with the reality of eternity and that you would meet us with your grace in Jesus. That you'd help us, those of us who do long for life to come, that you'd help us to fix our eyes afresh on Jesus, that we might in grief and in joy take glory in you that our future hope fixed on you would enable us to live here full, dependent, joyful, satisfied in Christ. Would you meet us in our place of need? Would you strengthen and encourage your people? For your glory, we pray these things. Amen.